to be read this morning. Um, so we are in Genesis 2. I'm going to read just from my, my Bible here. So our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 2, verses 4 through uh, 9, and verses uh, 15 through 17. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground of the Lord, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jumping down to verses 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day if you eat it, of it you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask your, your, your spirit upon us this morning as we reflect on your word and um, what you created us for. Help us to be inspired um, and have a picture of what it means to be a human being in your creation. And may that not just be a big idea, but something that is able to translate into our everyday lives. So meet us where we're at this morning spiritually and feed us and nurture us in your word. In the name of Christ, amen. I became a Christian in high school. When I was 16 years old, I did not grow up in a Christian family. And I remember still today, 30 plus years (laughs) later, I can still remember the emotional distaste that I had um, for the Christian uh, lifestyle, if you will, prior to becoming a Christian. I remember I was drawn to faith more Uh, intellectually before I was, if you will, emotionally. Um, And it's not that the Christian lifestyle, I didn't mean, I don't mean like the morals, uh, it's moral teachings and things like that, but it had more to do with like the lifestyle. Um, I was exposed to Christianity through a a Pentecostal family, very charismatic, and I had been drugged, if you will, to so many different praise and worship, like concerts, Christian concerts, revivals, and all this stuff. And I think I had formed in my head this picture of what it meant to be a Christian. And God used those things, you know, obviously, in my life. But I had formed this, this picture in my head as to be a Christian is just to always be uh, praising God, like with song and worship, in really emotional ways as well. Um, praying all the time, going to long revival meetings. And again, I was very uh, drawn to faith um, it made a lot of sense to me, but there was a lot of me that really resisted. And I knew that God had created, you know, that to, 
to be worshipped. That's what God created us for. And so if I was going to be a Christian, I didn't want to go, you know, I wanted to go all in. But like, is this really what it meant to be a Christian? And speaking in tongues and, and all that. And I was very conflicted, right? As a 16-year-old boy, you can imagine. You're just like, really? Is this what? <laughs> obviously, God has sorted out my issues, right? And, and I'm at a point now, and obviously, I'm standing here as a pastor for over 10 years. I love worship. I, if I miss a week of worship, my week feels incomplete. And yet, I think for me, um, the big breakthrough when it came to understanding the Christian life, was understanding that a life of true worship is not measured by the quantity of time that you spend in prayer or the intensity of your spiritual experiences and emotion or even how many church meetings you go to a week or revivals or things like that. But it's a life of true worship can be is um, understanding how every aspect of my life even the most boring, routine, seemingly unreligious and unspiritual parts of my life can be an expression of worship and things that, in a sense, flow out of the worship that we do as a corporate thing, um, people. And I want to be really clear here. I, I really think that regular Sunday worship is absolutely essential for the Christian life. And yet, it's from our weekly Sunday worship, our regular worship, out of which there's an extension, there's a flow outward to where the rest of our lives are shaped and formed as acts of worship. All of life can be an act of worship and glorifying of God, even those parts of our life that are kind of tedious and even really, uh, you know, not enjoyable at all. Uh, in the secular age, uh, worship, Christian worship, is a really strange thing. I said last week, I quoted the, the theologian, Alexander Schmemann, who is an Orthodox um, theologian, and he's, he, des he describes life in a secular age as the negation of man as a worshiping being. Translated meaning that in the secular age, worship is just less and less something that makes sense to people. It's like, why would you do that? That's weird. I actually had a neighbor say this to me. He's like, why do you, sing, why do you guys gather and sing songs? It just seems so weird to me. You know, we take it for granted, right? But in the secular age, this is not, right? That and if you watch popular movies or television and depictions of Christians worshiping or talking in genuine ways about their faith, they always come across as kind of creepy, weird, a little out of touch and angelic, you know, I'm not kind of out of touch with the world. I mean, I seriously have not seen a positive depiction of a Christian in popular media for, I don't even, I can't even point to one that's really compelling. You never, you never come away from seeing Christians depicted worshiping or, or talking about their faith and think, no, that's a real human being. That's a person that's really engaged with the world, with the way the world is meant to be. That's something I aspire to be in my humanity. You don't. And that's part of living in a secular age is that we have no imagination. And that's really what this series is about, the liturgical life. I'll repeat what I said, and this is really a quote from somebody, but... The liturgical life is doing the world the way the world was meant to be done, right? The worshiping life is doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. There's a well-known quote from, that it was in the worship folder last week by an early church father named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus says this, he says, the glory of God is man fully alive. And the life of man is the vision of God. 
The glory of God is man fully alive, man and woman fully alive, and the life of man is a vision of God. In other words, a true human being, a fully alive human being, is one whose life is transparent to the light and to the glory of God. Like when our lives, the vision of God, become in a sense windows to transcendence, that is a human being that is fully alive. And that's the whole idea of a life of worship. And we begin to see what this means at a practical level for how we think about what it means to be a person with this idea, the category of the image of God in Genesis 2, on well, Genesis 1 as well. Last week, we explored Genesis 1 and the creation of the world, which is this big cosmic perspective. And uh, we looked at the creation of the world, and if you read the, the text, it, it's a liturgical text, meaning it's, it's a worship text, that when God creates the world, it's an act of worship. There's a kind of dialogue there, there's a way that when God creates, he's, he's creating a liturgical world that's structured and ordered and patterned in ways that, that point to him. So, so that was Genesis 1. And so if all of creation is like a cosmic temple for the presence of God, then the way to get along in the world is, is, is a liturgical life. It's ordering our imaginations in the way of thinking towards the way the world was really created. God's presence is, fills the entire earth, which means that Worship is always possible. It is always possible to worship. Now, when we move to Genesis 2, the, the, the kind of camera lens, which has been zoomed out, sort of zooms in, and we have this scene of a garden. But the, the imagery of the temple doesn't go away. So here we have creation as this cosmic temple in Genesis 1, but as we go into the garden, it's sort of, the, it's sort of zoom up, and we have the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden is like the Holy of Holies within the temple. And that's the imagery you get in the tabernacle and the temple is often patterned on garden imagery. Here we have the most intimate presence of God in creation, God dwelling with the man and the woman in the garden. Now, I want to ask this question. What are human beings for? <laughs> what are human beings for? in the light of Genesis, but in general, like, what, what is a human being for? Uh, if you, and how does, this, how does this relate to worship? If you um, look at other stories of the beginning of, the universe, of creation in the ancient Near Eastern context, human beings were uh, created by lesser gods to do work that those gods didn't want to do. That's what you see in the Babylonian myths and Assyrian myths. Uh, human beings were created to dig ditches, or to, to produce food. So they are created for work, but a kind of a work that's a form of servitude, things that the, other, that the lesser gods didn't want to do, so they create the humans. Genesis has uh, a very different account. Human beings are created for work, but it's a very different kind of work. It's not the work of servitude. It's the work of priests. It's not menial work. It's royal work. And what stands out when you look at um, this, this language of the image of God in Genesis 1 and 2 is it really captures this something that's really unique for, about human beings compared to all the rest of animal life and creation. No other creature is said to be image bearers. And what the image bearer is, is a person that, in a sense, um, uniquely presents, and I'm, I'm turning the, uh, a noun into a verb, uh, this is a bad thing. 
um, presence God in creation, right? That, that the image of God is, is we uniquely presence God within the whole of creation to the creation. Um, this is what I mean by the priestly dimension of human nature. Because to be a priest is to be dealing with the presence of God, mediating God's presence within a context to another reality. And the image-bearing human being is, is a kind of priest that, that presences God within creation. Uh, as a way to understand this, let me give you some categories. So in the ancient Near Eastern context as well, oftentimes uh, you have, there's a kind of union of imagery of royal, kingly imagery and priestly image. And kings in the ancient world were often seen to be as like, uh, they're, they're called images of the gods, right? They, they represented the gods. They were like vice regents or deputies, if you will, within government that were kind of image bearers of, of the god. This is used as language of image bearer as well, but instead of just applying it to the male king who rules over the people, actually applies it to all human beings, male and female, high and low, that all human beings have this royal priestly uh, identity that presences God within creation. Um, a couple of verses back to chapter one. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, there's that royal imagery, dominion. Over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, every creeping thing. And it's you, Psalm 8 is another great text. What is man? What is man? Here we go, that question again. That you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet all the sheep, the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Human beings have unique dignity, unique glory within creation to rule on God's behalf. And it's a way, and, and by ruling it, there's a way that it's not <laughs> uh, just a, one with authority, but one who has responsibility to uh, communicate God's presence and God's reality within the rest of creation. This is, again, the, the priestly dimension of mediating God's presence. Now, when we turn to the garden, you, this royal priest theme continues. It becomes even more explicit. So when God creates the universe, uh, there's a sense in which he's left it parts of the universe um, that still need creation, if you will. They need more development. They need more cultivation. And there's a sense in which, in the garden, that, that creation is incomplete without the human being, right? It says that there was no man to work the ground. There was no Adam. This is a general universal term for the human. There was no Adam to work the ground. So God creates the human being. And part of the idea of being in the garden and I didn't read all the imagery about the rivers and all the natural resources. I probably should have because that, that's all to say that the garden is this like little city that needs to be developed. There's all these natural resources, gold and dilium, and there's all these rivers, that, you know, which are great things for commerce and development, that God creates the human beings for the cultivation of creation. And it says there that when God puts the Adam in the garden, he puts them there to work it and to keep it. Um, afod and samar. These are very important terms. And later on um, in the book of Numbers and Leviticus, it will be used of the priests that they are, they are working. They're, they're, it's cultic language, if you will. 
it's, it's, it's worship language. The, the, the priests, you know, they work in, in service within the temple, and they keep, which is this guarding function. And when Adam, if you remember where Adam, when all the animals come to Adam, and he names them, and he distinguishes them, same language used of priests in the temple, naming, distinguishing. This is all priestly language. The point is this. The garden is understood to be a temple, like the, the holy of holies, in the middle of creation, and God has set the man and the woman in the center, and he has made them high priest and priestess to work, to cultivate, and to keep. So this question of what are human beings made for? What is man for? The, ad, the answer is this, we're created for work, but not just any work. It's royal work. It's priestly work. It's work that connects us with God and, and connects God's presence and glory within creation. This is that that idea of being a priest. Okay, so how does that then translate down into how we perceive and think about our work, our everyday lives? I think it begins with understanding that all forms of work can be forms of worship. That's the work that is our careers that we have to do in order to make money, (laughs) provide food, provide a place, it's the work, if you're a student, if you're not, you know, making money, but you're just a, you're in high school or you're in school somewhere, your work as a student is work that can glorify God. Your work in the household is work that is a form of worship, the work of raising children. All of these things are ways and occasions in which we can presence God within creation. Now, we live in a fallen world, <laughs> and um, there's often a very big gap between our experience of work and um, worship. And it's not such a simple thing to bring them together. I'm going to come back to this. But I want you to think about what work was like in the garden, because this is, in a sense, what we all aspire to. And this is what, when God, in, our, in our lives, as we become more sanctified, um, our lives approach, which is the idea in the garden is that all work was worship. When, when Adam was working the ground and keeping in the garden, he was worshiping God. It's not like worship was something separate he did where he's like, okay, now I'm going to sing some songs, <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm going to offer, you know, that, I mean, maybe there was singing. I imagine the garden had lots of singing. But it's, you know, again, in our imagination so often we think of worship, oh, that's that religious thing we do on Sunday morning. But in the garden, uh, work was worship and worship was work. And the key thing about it was that God was present in a really unique, personal, intimate way. It says that God walked in the cool of the day in the garden. Right? God sort of had conversation with Adam and Eve. And, and so there's this, there's this perfect harmony and integration between what Adam did in his activities and his relationship with God. Um, our work is meant to be cooperative and collaborative with God. It's a way of, there's a way of being with God in our work. And by work here, um, please don't think, set set, set aside the work we do to make money. I just want you to think of your your daily activities, the things you do, even your play. This is all stuff that God can be with us. Now, uh, let me give you an illustration that I've used in the past. Um, I imagine that the original garden work was something I experienced that's similar to 
when I cook with my daughter, Tess. I don't see her in here. She Tess. Um, so Tess is, she's 14 years old. She's, uh, she's a great cook and baker, and she enjoys cooking with me. And uh, she's uh, become quite good at it, and um, we often will cook together. And it's a very meaningful experience as a father because, one, we're doing something that has to get done in the household, right? We have to eat, uh, and this is important work, and so there's that. But then it's also an opportunity for us to spend time together. But, uh, but the other thing, too, which is great as a father, is like she it gets better and better, and she needs less of my work. And sometimes she's like, okay, you leave, and I'm going to do the rest of this, right? And it's a little bit of like our relationship with God, where God is like more and more. It's like, hey, you're growing up. You're maturing. You can do this. You have more responsibility, right? But there's, there's a kind of collaboration, and there's a kind of joy of just being with one another in our presence, you know, as a father and a daughter. And that's kind of our relationship with God, right? That, that there's a way that, that he wants to be with us in our work. And that that work is actually the basis for being together in relationship. Now, even after human beings, Adam and Eve, are exiled from the Garden of Eden, work is still very closely tied to how human beings relate to God. Um, work doesn't just become for the sake of survival. Uh, work is still how um, we connect with God. And I just want to remind you of the story in Genesis 4 of the story of Cain and Abel. So it says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. Now, note the words here. Worker, keeper. Same words that are used in Genesis 2 to refer to um, the Adam's work in the garden, to work it and to keep it. So here, though, you have more specialization, right? So um, Cain is a worker, and, uh, and Abel is a keeper. And so Cain makes an offering, and he brings it to the Lord from the ground. And Abel makes an offering from his flocks. But again, what you see here is the work is central to their relationship and how they relate to God. And I think, again, it's this idea that our work can be an offering. That's that sacrificial theme that we've been kind of following through our worship theme, that there's a way that my whole life and my work is an offering to the Lord. So no matter the work I do, whether it is with um, vegetables or with sheep or with numbers or as an accountant or a teacher with children or a janitor or a lawyer, whatever my work might be, anything that I touch is an opportunity to make an offering to the Lord, to offer my work up as, as a sacrifice, if, if you will. And I think Paul, in the book of Colossians, very profoundly uh, gets at, at how um, even menial work, undignified, even dehumanizing work, that of slaves, if, if it's offered to the Lord, can dignify it. He, speaking, writing to slaves, he says this. He says, whatever you do, work heartily, as to the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So what does it mean when we make an offering or a sacrifice of our work, even work we despise and we feel is below us or is unenjoyable? What does it mean to offer even that work up as a sacrifice to the Lord? 
It means this. It means to make God the object of your work. God becomes the object. Or to put it in another category, he becomes the audience of your work. So who's the audience of your work? So even as I preach, one of the things that has had to anchor me, you know, for the past 10 years of preaching is at the end of the day, I come up here and I think I have an audience of one, and it is God. My, my, I want you to understand and grow and be nurtured, but I, if, I, if I know, like, if I care too much about what you think about my sermons, I do listen, by the way, <laughs> that's not good for me. The better, I, I'll be a more faithful preacher if I'm like, it's to the Lord. I want to be faithful to the word and what the Lord gives you. Who's the audience of your work? Is it your boss merely? Or is it your colleagues that are watching? Or is it just yourself? To make an offering of our work is to offer our work up to the Lord to make him the object of our work. And I think there's something really powerful here, especially when you're doing in two directions. Sometimes we have work that we really don't like and we feel is dehumanizing. And there is, there, there's a lot of work like that in the world. And if you can move out of those jobs, you should move out of those jobs. You should not feel like you have to work those jobs if you have other options. But sometimes we don't. And it is possible, though, still for those jobs to be dignifying when we make God the object. But then there's another kind of work, which is probably more representative of our congregation, which is I've studied, I've worked my way up, and now I have my career, and I love it. I just spend my whole time working, all the time. And the temptation there is idolatry, <laughs> where you love your work more than you should. But to make God the object of your work means that you can keep your work in check, right? Make God the object of our work means that the inner character of our work is directed in the right way. See, the problem with Cain is there was something off about his sacrifice. It was a bad offering. And it reflected a distorted relationship that he had with God. God wasn't the true object of his offering. And we don't know what was, I mean, in the Genesis text is very ambiguous. We have no, no understanding of what it was about Cain's offering that God found unacceptable. You know, we, the reality is this, it's an inner reality. Um, the reality is God was not the object of his work. Now, what does it mean for God to be the object of my work, for God to be my audience? How does that, I mean, there's so many different applications here, but a couple of Mars like, hey, you know what? I do good work. <laughs> I do good work. Even if my boss is not looking, even if nobody else cares or nobody will follow up, I, I do my work with integrity because it's just, it's a way to praise the Lord. I do it for integrity. I'm also, I'm just thankful for my work, right? I'm, I'm thankful, you know, Lord, thanks for giving me a job. <laughs> thanks for just giving me this thing to do. It's not ideal, but I'm thankful for it nevertheless. Again, there's just so many different ways that this really can transform and bring God more into our work. And again, most importantly for, for many of us is it's, it's, it keeps us from turning our work into an idol. Because at the end of the day, it's not about us. We're not trying to build an identity on our work. And that is our great temptation, is to find an identity, to make it, to be something. And the problem is this, if it is, um, oftentimes when we do make it, it swells our egos and alienates us from others and alienates us from God. Or if we fail at that thing we love to do the most, it's absolutely identity crushing to be fired from a job. I mean... <laughs> That, that's identity crushing because so much of our worth is tied up with our work, our identity. 
I love uh, the quote from John Coltrane. Um, I've sh this has been shared before many times, but in the, in John Coltrane is a great jazz musician, one of the greatest jazz albums, The Love Supreme. And he, in, the, in the liner notes of that album, he uh, has this quote. He says, Dear, in the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. And I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say, thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. And may he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. So you don't have to have like a classic jazz album to make a great offering to the Lord. It can be much more humble things like a meal <laughs> or just a day really engaged with the kids that God has put in your life, whether it's your children or as a teacher, the kids before you, or if you're you know, the customer, whatever it is, it's just like there's all kinds of opportunity for us to make a humble offering to the Lord. And this is, again, what Paul is, means in Romans 12 when he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole life as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Jesus understood his whole life to be an offering up to the God, up to God as um, an expression of perfect worship. And I, when you think about the person of Jesus Christ, he here is a man. Behold the man. He is a true human being. There was nobody who ever lived that was more human than Jesus. There was nobody who did the world right like Jesus did. And one of the things he says in the Gospel of John, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And what's interesting that Jesus is flipping around, because oftentimes we think that the goal of work is food. But Jesus says, no, my work is my food. In other words, there is pleasure, there is meaning, there is worth in the work that I have to do, and the work that I will do. And, and that is doing the will of the Father. And if you think about the life of Jesus, what is that work? I mean, it's his whole life. It's his ministry, it's his teaching, it's his healings. It's his, his formula of these disciples, but his great work is on the cross. And in the Gospel of John, from the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. In other words, the work is complete. It's perfect now. <clears throat> Adam in the garden, um, and we as children of Adam, um, <laughs> offer up many, many bad sacrifices. Lots and lots of imperfect work. But Jesus is that perfect Adam that comes along, and his work is perfect. And it is perfect worship and a perfect offering. And when we look to Christ, what we realize is it's not just like we imitate him, we do as he did. No, his work, we find our work in his. And again, I want you to come back to that image of, of me cooking with my daughter but, but, but more strongly, that, that in Jesus Christ, now the work that we have, any work, can be made perfect because his work is perfect. 
and his life is perfect. It's what Paul means when he says that we have our union and our life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to think about all the different places in our life where um, we can offer up to you as worship, as offering as sacrifice, in the way that you can make those areas meaningful, even when we struggle to find meaning, or the ways that you can bring your holiness into those places. Um, we give you thanks for Jesus and his perfect work, and help us to see our work in his. In the name of Christ we pray.